Okay, uh, what I'd like to do for you uh, at this time is I, I want to read a passage uh, from Hebrews chapter 12. These are the first three verses of Hebrews 12. Listen to the, go- to the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So far, the reading of God's word. Uh, We don't know uh, who the author to the Hebrews actually was. Uh, We think he was Jewish. Uh, Certainly, this church that uh, received this letter was made up mostly of Jewish converts to Christianity. We don't know, though, if it was an apostle or if it was written by simply a friend of this congregation, most scholars think it was written by someone who was the pastor of this church. And that's because um, it's obvious as you read through it that this author writes with a pastor's heart. He loves his people dearly. And throughout the letter, as you read the whole thing, you discover that he has one main goal, And that is this, he wants his people to make it to the end. He talks about, in verse 2, about running this this faith with, or, sorry, running this race with perseverance. Now, that's actually verse 1, but the point is the same, running this race with perseverance. He has his mind on the finish line, because the life of faith is a race, This author is not the only one who talks about it that way. The Apostle Paul talks it about that way in several places as well. The life of faith is a race, and it's not a short race. It's not a sprint. In fact, it's a marathon. It is, at times, grueling. It is, at times, a real grind. And so the author is thinking about the end of the race. He's thinking about, frankly, the last day. Uh, History, friends, is linear. And what I mean by that is that history has a definite beginning to it. We are currently in the middle of it, and it is heading toward a definite end. And according to the Bible, that end is the throne of God himself. When at the end of history, he will bring all things into judgment. Now... That can sound kind of scary, obviously, bringing all things into judgment. But for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus, it's not scary. It shouldn't be scary anyway. It should be wonderful. It should be something that we anticipate. It's something that we look forward to because when we stand before the judgment, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he lived for you, that he died for you, when you believe that and you have given yourself to him in this world, then when you stand before the judgment, you don't stand there in terror. You don't stand there in fear. You stand there with excitement and anticipation because you are going to see your Savior who did all that for you out of his marvelous, marvelous grace you're going to see him face to face 
And you're going to spend eternity with him. Forever lost in wonder, love, and grace. That's what you have to look forward to. Now, the author here, he's envisioning that day. He's thinking about that day. And he's thinking about his people, his congregation, those that he has pastored and he has loved. And he is longing deep in his heart that they would be there on that last day. That they would endure, that they would hold on to their faith, that they would finish the race well so that they would, along with all those who love Jesus, be standing there at the last day just basking in the infinite love of God. And so, for the first 11 chapters of this letter, he does everything in his power to encourage his people. He exhorts them, he teaches them, he prays for them, he warns them, he rebukes them, he educates them. You see, they're, they're tired and they're scared. If you look at verse 3, it says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That is a real possibility for them. They're feeling the weight of their faith as they face persecution, as they face hardships, as they face uh, opposition. They, they feel the fragility of their faith. And they're afraid that they will lose heart. And so in chapter 12 the author makes one more appeal. And it's as though he says to his people, come with me to Calvary. Come with me to the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to consider something as we go there. As you face your struggles, as you deal with your own hardships, as you are beaten down by life and battered by your circumstances, I want you to see the cross I want you to fix your eyes on your crucified Savior, Jesus. And I want you to think about what he endured. And I want, to think, I want you to think about why he endured it so that you will be able to endure, so that you will not grow weary, so that you will not lose heart. Now, it's Good Friday. That day when we commemorate what Jesus did on that cross so many centuries ago. And I'm your pastor. And I love you. And I know that we are in a difficult time right now. I know that there are many of you who are struggling. I know that there are many of you who are perhaps feeling a little weary and maybe losing heart. And I want you to come with me this morning and go to the cross. And see your crucified Savior. See what he endured and see why he endured it so that you will be renewed. And if you're watching this this morning and you, you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You've not given your life to him. I want you to look at him too. And I want you to see his infinite, inexhaustible unconditional love for you so that you won't just be renewed but you will be born again into a new life into a new future so let's look at very quickly first of all what is it that Jesus endured it says that he endured the cross okay 
What does that mean? When, when we think of the cross, naturally, understandably, we often think primarily of the physical pain that Jesus experienced when he was on the cross. And it's true. It was tremendously painful. It was, it was horrendous. In fact, it was so bad that a new word was uh, introduced to describe that kind of pain. Our word excruciating comes from crucifixion. But the truth is, believe it or not, uh, there are worse ways to die. In fact, some of Jesus' disciples died more painful deaths than he died. Yes, he endured the physical pain of the cross, but there was something else that he endured. And the author to the Hebrews points it out when he says that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. He's saying that there was a, a humiliation, a disgrace that was unique to Jesus as he died on that cross. Now, we all hate to feel ashamed. We all hate the feeling and the sense of shame when it comes over us, and that's completely understandable. But, but Jesus' shame that he experienced on the cross was unique because of who he was, you see. Jesus was not like us. Sometimes we experience shame that is deserved in the sense that we may have done something wrong or, or the, uh, the, true, the truth about our sinful hearts have kind of been exposed in that, and, and, and people discover that and we feel shame for that. And maybe it's legitimate. But Jesus is not like us. He's, he's God in the flesh. He is the son of God. He is perfect in every way. You know, the author to the Hebrews describes him this way. In the very first chapter of his letter, he says this. He says, the son, speaking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's who Jesus is, and that's the one who experienced a unique shame when he died on that cross. So let me, let me just walk you through the things that Jesus endured, the shameful things that Jesus endured on the cross. First of all, Jesus endured shameful accusation. You may remember that before Jesus went to the cross, he was put on trial, and he was put on trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a a religious leadership body made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, elders. These were the, the highly respected religious people who had religious and political control of uh, Jerusalem. And when he stood before them, they accused him of something. They accused him of blasphemy. Now, how in the world could they accuse Jesus, of all people, of blasphemy? When you look at his life, when you, you look at his teaching, what you see is that he is the only flawless person that has ever lived. He, he obeyed God, whom he called Father, because God is his Father. He obeyed him perfectly. There's a place in John chapter 4 where Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What he means by that is, is that the thing that drives Jesus, the thing that energized him in the course of his life on earth, the thing that brought him strength, in, in other words, his life goal, he said, was to serve his father. 
The Bible says that we are supposed to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Jesus did that. He was utterly committed and devoted to his heavenly father. He loved him with a pure love that was unadulterated. And yet, they accused him of blasphemy. Have have you ever had this? Have you ever been accused of not loving someone that you really do love absolutely deeply. Now, understand, sometimes when we love very deeply and very strongly, we express that love in the wrong way. It can come out in the wrong way. Our motives aren't wrong, but our our actions are wrong. But to be accused of having the wrong motives behind it. You know, parents understand this. When when a kid, in, in absolute anger and defiance, they say, you hate me. And it cuts you to the heart because you, you're hurt so deeply because you think to yourself, how can you think that? How can you think that I hate you? Okay, maybe I've done some things wrong. Maybe I've said some things wrong. Maybe I haven't made all the best decisions. But for you to question my love for you? I clothe you. I feed you. I care about you. I think about you. I pray for you. I'm constantly seeking ways to, 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 to develop you so that your life will flourish and you'll be a meaningful member of society. It's absolutely devastating to have that experience. And that's what they did to Jesus. Now, they actually would have been right about Jesus as a blasphemer if he wasn't who he said he was. But Jesus was telling the truth. He is who he says he was. And he endured that on the cross. There's more to what Jesus endured and the shame he endured. He was exposed to shameful mocking. You know, we read that twice he was stripped, completely naked. And and when he was placed on that uh, cross, contrary to all the movies that you've ever watched about the crucifixion, he was completely naked on there. This is the Son of God who before the incarnation, before he entered his mother's womb, he existed in heavenly glory and he was clothed with a majesty that far outstrips the greatest monarchs in the history of the world and their pageantry. Think about how you and I, we recoil and we freak out when someone accidentally steps into the bathroom because we forgot to close the door and we don't want to be exposed. And here was Jesus exposed for all the world to see And yet he endured that shame on the cross. There was more to the mocking than just that, though, because they mocked his very nature, you see. Remember those leaders I mentioned uh, from the Sanhedrin? We read in the Gospels that, that as Jesus was hanging on that cross and they all gathered around to watch him die, at one point they cried out, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And in that moment, the creature was mocking its creator. Jesus is our creator. 
Psalm 139 says that that God knows each and every single one of us intimately. Jesus knew every one of those mockers intimately. He had knit them together in their mother's womb. He had had formed them in the depths of the earth, meaning like like a master craftsman who pays attention to to every last detail as they they craft their treasured possession, their, their piece of art. Jesus did that with them, and yet there they were, the creatures spitting at, laughing at, jeering at the very one who created them in their mother's womb. He endured that shame on the cross. Let me give you just one more. I learned this from Charles Spurgeon, and this one might be the worst of them all, in fact. They mocked his devotion. You know, when, when the most heinous criminal is sentenced to death, traitors, murderers, genocidal maniacs, people who have made, committed crimes against humanity, when they've been sentenced to death and they make their way towards uh, their execution, oftentimes their execu- executioners, they will, they will give them a moment before the time of their execu- execution to, to make peace with God. Make your peace with God, they'll say. Pray. What happened when Jesus prayed? His soul was being ripped apart, rent asunder. He was being torn from his heavenly father, the one that he loved more than anything else. He was being plunged into the darkest depths of hell itself so that he ended up crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, Jesus remained very faithful. He was faithful right to the end. He refused to give up. He refused to let go of his father. He refused to turn his back on him. He refused to... to to let it go and instead he held on with faithfulness and he cried out to his father and even though he heard nothing from his father what did these people do? They mocked him. Look. Look. He must be calling out to Elijah. You can picture the sneer. He was shown no mercy at all. Yet he endured that shame on the cross. And you know, he knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. And yet he scorned it. That is, he braved it. He, he, he went through it. It could have ended at any moment. He could have at any moment snapped his fingers and an army the likes of which this world had never seen in its history of angels with flaming swords would have come to his side and they would have, 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 have destroyed his enemies right in front of him and taken him off that cross and he could have stood in victory gloating, gloating over them and he refused. He just took it and took it and took it, and he never flinched. Why? Why did he do all that? Why did he face all that? Why did he go through all that? Well, verse 2 tells us 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The reason he endured the cross was for the joy set before him. In other words, on the other side of the cross was a joy, a prize that made it all worth it. Now, what could possibly be that joy, that prize? I mean, this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself. Before he entered his mother's womb, he was at the Father's side in glory. And he lacked absolutely nothing. God is completely self-sufficient. No pleasure was denied to him. There was nothing that he lacked in any way. There, what could possibly be missing? Missing. The answer is nothing except you. You. If you are watching this right now, would you please look and listen? The only thing that was missing was you. First Peter 3 verse 18 says, Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Because of our sin, there's a great chasm between us and God. There was a great chasm between us and God, a great chasm between life and death, between heaven and hell, and we were dying because of that separation. And Jesus left the pleasures of heaven and he faced the horrors of hell for us to bring you to God. Many of you who are listening think that God doesn't care or thinks that you're not worthy of God or think that, 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 that there's nothing special about you. You can't matter to God. You don't deserve his grace. And many of those things are true. You certainly don't deserve his grace. But you need to understand God in his infinite love and in his infinite wisdom along with the son set his affection on you. He saw you before you knew anything of it. And he said that person, he said Paul Vandenbrink, he said you, I am going to send my son to that cross to endure the shame of it, to go through it all, to experience hell itself because I refuse to have heaven without him. That's why he endured it. There's a beautiful prayer from the Valley of Vision, an old prayer book. Listen to what it says. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, thirsty that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept so that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, 
bore a, a, a thorned crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might un uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired so that I might live forever. He didn't do that because we're lovely. Because we weren't. Or because we're worthy, because we aren't. Or because we're obedient and good. Because we're not. He did it because he loves us. That's it. It brings supreme glory to God for him to lavish his incredible love upon sinners like you and me and make us his children. That's it. His immeasurable love beyond our wildest dreams. Listen, friends. I'm your pastor. I wish I could be with you this weekend. I can't. I wish I could be sitting in your homes talking to you. Some of you are weighed down by tremendous guilt, by self-loathing. Frankly, some of you are also weighed down by too much pride. That's probably my biggest problem. But right now, maybe you're tired and you're struggling and you're wondering amidst all this COVID stuff, did God forget me? You're feeling weary. You wonder if you can endure. And I wish I could just wrap my arms around you. I wish I could climb through that recorder and, and hold you. What I'm asking you to do, friends, what I'm asking you to do, my beloved brothers and sisters, is to consider Jesus. Consider your Savior. Look at him on the cross and think about all that he endured for you, the mountains that he climbed, the oceans that he swam to make you his. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, how deep your love for us, how vast beyond all measure. We stand here this morning lost in wonder, love, and grace. With your love, O oh God, change us. Change us to be more committed to you as you are committed to us. Make us more bold for you. Make us more obedient to you. But most of all, Father, make us more at one with you. 
Make us know you better, love you deeper, commune with you, just as your son does. And bless us this weekend as we know it's Friday, but as we look forward to Sunday, it's coming. Yes, our Savior died, but he will rise again. And we look forward to celebrating that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.